We are the Pop Gorilla. This is the show where we drop a spoiler-free review of anything from pop culture in less time than it takes to listen to a song. Today's Pop Gorilla comes to us from this little-known company that you probably aren't aware of called DC Comics. It is a new YA graphic novel. DC has been putting these out where they take characters you know and love and putting them in new and different situations. So far, my favorite has been Harley Quinn's Breaking Glass, drawn by Steve Pugh and written by Mariko Tamaki. When I saw that she was doing another one, this one called I Am Not Starfire, I was in. And whatever it is Mariko does, let's all just own whatever Mariko does we want to read. I Am Not Starfire focuses on Starfire's daughter, Mandy Anders, doing everything she can do to be the exact opposite of Starfire. So she's short, she dyes her hair black, she dresses it all black, she's super goth. She is awesome. This is just a story about being somebody's famous kid and what that means for you and how you live in the world. The art done by Yoshi, Yoshi Yoshitani is spectacular. The It's drawn in a way that's gonna appeal to new readers. It's, it's not drawn in your very photorealistic, super comic booky way. It's not done with all the real smooth lines. It's kind of rough. It's almost done in a way, and I assume this is intentional, that makes the reader feel that it was probably drawn by someone. It's it's who's feeling these emotions that Mandy's feeling. Mandy is very angsty and she's upset and everybody loves her mom and all of the people want to be her friend because of who her mom is. And they're like, oh my God, do you know Nightwing? And oh my God, do you know Beast Boy? And do you know Raven? And of course she does know all those people. Those are her people. She's been raised by those people. Her mom is Starfire. And this whole book is about her trying to figure out what that means. How does she... What does she do? And she doesn't have any powers. She's kind of a squib. And of course, we learn what that means to not have any powers and where your powers lie. I don't want to give too much away. It's just a fun, thoughtful, emotional book about what it's really like to be a teenager and what it must be like for a teenager whose parents are famous. We all have put our kids in the middle of a social media nightmare. All of our kids. My kids are adults now, but they grew up right in the face of this, right in the teeth of it. And my wife and I say all the time, if we had known what it was gonna be like, we would have been even bigger dicks about it than we were. We were pretty big dicks about it, but we would have been bigger dicks about it had we known how how it would turn out. So this is a this is a story about about fame, real fame, artificial fame, what it means to be related to someone famous, what it means to be a hero, what it means to be a kid in this world. And it is set in a fantastical superhero DC universe. Of course, a different one than the DC universe you know because these are different characters. They're the same names, but they have a different story. That's the cool thing about these YA retellings. It's set in this place, but it's so real and it's so grounded and it's beautifully written like everything Mariko does and it's beautifully drawn. I am gonna be hunting down anything that Yoshi does because just like I do everything that Mariko writes, I wanna find. I found a new artist that I really love, and you're gonna love this too. So get on that, I am not Starfire. Make sure you subscribe, because you may never know when the Pop Gorillas will strike next. My name's Scott Weatherly, and I'm the host of 20th Century Geek, the podcast that looks at all aspects of geek and pop culture from the 20th century. Whether by myself or with an amazing guest, 
20th Century Geek delivers full movie series retrospectives, classic comic reviews and discussions, interviews with those that created and contributed to 20th Century pop culture, and everything else in between. 20th Century Geek is your one-stop shop for retro geek talk. Find us on iTunes, Spotify and all other podcast catchers. everyone my name is Matthew B Lloyd and I will be your guide as we explore the world of comics before the advent of the Silver Age thanks for tuning in to the comics in motion network we've got a lot of great shows for you thanks for joining me as always I'm excited to share this episode with you before we get started remember you can follow the classic comic show on Twitter at comics Lloyd or contact the show via email at classiccomicsmbl at gmail.com you can also find me on Twitter at Matthew B underscore Lloyd and at dccomicsnews.com, where I am assistant editor and write reviews. This is episode 16, and today we're going to do a special double shot episode. So, double shot number one, if you will. We're going to take a look at two characters that are probably not able to fill an entire episode on their own. So I'm going to do them together. First up is Madame Fatale. Um, a very interesting character from Quality Comics, and then the Golden Age Blue Beetle. Uh, Blue Beetle has had multiple incarnations over the years, and some of them are fan favorites, and we'll mention those at the end, but we're going to start by checking out his original Golden Age incarnation from Mystery Man Comics number 1, published by Fox Studios. Um, we're starting with Madame Fatalo, so instead of giving anything away, let's go ahead and turn to Madame Fatal's very first appearance. Crack Comics number one, cover dated May 1940. Crack Comics number one also features the first appearance of a few other characters you may have heard of. Alias the Spider, who was a stand-in for Green Arrow in the Seven Soldiers of Victory in one post-crisis uh, version of the team, and the Redward Pedo, and the original Black Condor. So, let's get a read-through of this first story and see what we can learn together. So we're going to the Digital Comics Museum here uh, for Crack Comics number one, and I've got the link in the show notes, so you can follow along if you'd like. So just to begin with, the first uh, the first panel is uh, not really a splash, just a logo, and it's got uh, Madame Fatal. She's an elderly woman with white hair and and glasses, and I'm just gonna say her name is spelled. Not spelled Madame Fatal, it's spelled Madame Fat Fatal. That's what it looks like to me. There's no E's on the end, but it's probably going to be easier to uh, pronounce it Madame Fatal just because that's that's the way I'm going to hear it uh, in my head. Uh, by Art 
Pinagian. So we got the first panel of the story, and there's a, a lady in an apartment. Oh, it's Madame Fatal, our neighbor. Come in, my dear, and rest yourself. Why, Sarah, you've been crying. Tell me, is it those racketeers again? Yes, they want the money, and my husband is sick in bed. It's the John Carver gang. They're coming. Listen. John Carver, she thinks. Hmm. Stay out here in the hall until I call you, Lou. Okay, Mike. Then uh, one of the thugs busts in. Look here, just a... Out of the way, old lady. Listen, you. Have you got the money, or do I? Oh, my arm. Please don't help. Uh, and then Madame, Madame Fatal puts her uh, hand on the thug's shoulder. Didn't I tell you the boss wanted it today? What the? Hey, but this will teach you manners. And Fatal slugs him with a left. Oh, Lou, help. Madame Fatal leaps to the entrance of the room and grabs one of the drapes. I'm coming, Mike. And as Lou runs headlong into the room, she stretches the drapes in front of the doorway, and he gets caught up in them. And he's uh, unable to move, and he's disoriented, and she slugs him with a stick of some kind. It looks like a, looks like a, it was her cane. He's, he's got a cane. Um, ah, here's a card from one of his pockets, giving John Carver's private business address. Benson building. Sarah, you didn't know what this means to me. But, Madame Fatal, your strength, you knock those crooks out with one blow. Tut, tut, my dear, it's that morning radio program. They give such wonderful setting up exercises. Well, I'll be getting along, Sarah. Oh, Madame Fatal, how can we ever thank you? Don't try, my dear. I was just doing my homework for tomorrow's program. I'll send Officer Clancy to pick up those two hoodlums. Goodbye. An hour later finds Madame Fatal on the tenth floor of the Benson building. Here it is, I've got... Here it is. Somehow I've got to get Carver's home address. Hey, you. Get out. Oh, sorry. I didn't know it was a lady. What is it, madam? I was just hoping it'd be you, Mr. Porter. You see, sir, my little grandson collects stamps, and I thought perhaps I could get some here. Oh, you mean from the scrap envelopes from the wastebaskets? That's it. You'll help an old lady, won't you? Sure, well, but they're all gone now. Why, this is the only trace of the envelope around here. And I mail this to the man who rents his office as soon as I finish sweeping. Oh, isn't that a nice stamp? But Madame Fatal's eyes fall on the return address of the envelope. Heh <laughs> a mighty good day's work, I call it. Yes. So she heads off. It looks like it's night time now. And she's heading down the street and runs into it. looks like the paper boy. Hello, Madame Fatal. Are you going to help me with my arithmetic tonight? Not tonight, Johnny. I've got some very important business to attend to. Yes, very important. Uh, she walks in, I guess it's her apartment, and there's a parrot. Arr! To be or not to be? That's the question. Arr! Evening, Hamlet. Have you been a good boy while I was away? Today is my lucky day. I finally found John Carver. Arr! What's in a name? A rose by any other would... You certainly remember your Shakespeare. I taught you, eh, Hamlet? For eight years I've been searching for John Carver, and tonight we shall meet face to face. Good night, Hamlet. Sleep tight. Arr! Good night. But she goes out. Driver, look out. That old lady, you'll hit her. Quick, bring her into the car. We'll take her home. Fool, why don't you watch for your driving? Sorry, sir. I don't think she's hurt badly, but step on it. Yes, Mr. Carver. So she's managed to get a hit, or maybe not managed to, but faked it, to get hit by the right car, and she gets picked up. Later in John Carver's library, She's coming around, Reeves. That'll be all. I'll take care of her. Yes, sir. What's this? 
Must have fallen from her coat pocket. Looks like a bundle of old papers. Let's see. Hmm, newspaper clippings. What the? Great Scott, I can't believe it. And now these are interesting. This just tells you a little bit about uh, Fatal. Uh, Richard Stanton plays final stage role, May 1st, 1930. Richard Stanton, famous character, actor, and master of makeup, last night played the last role of his long and successful career. Mr. Stanton played an old woman in a performance that thrilled and amazed his audience. Stanton marries. Stanton makes a million in the stock market. Richard Stanton, famous actor, is proud father of baby girl. Stanton heir missing. No word as yet from kidnappers or rich Stanton's daughter. So, uh... There's this guy, Stanton, who played a old lady in a role, in his final stage role. Uh, he got married, he made a bunch of money in the stock market, he uh, has a kid, and then the kid is uh, uh, kidnapped. And then we get back to the present, as it were. Suddenly, John Carver turns and stares intently at Madame Vital. <gasps> I should have known. How could you? I've gotten away with it for nine years, my dear Carver, and now I've caught up with you. When I married the girl you loved and you went into a jealous rage, you waited two years later to kidnap my only daughter. I knew it was you, but didn't tell the police. I didn't want my wife's past connected with a nasty rat like you. She died of a broken heart when the police got nowhere. I swore I'd get you. As you went from city to city engaged in crooked rackets, I followed you, posing as Madame Fatal. I became friendly with honest people who were being terrorized by you and your mobsters. As Stanton, alias Madame Fatal, talks, Carver suddenly leaps at him, slugs him. Ugh. So, Madame Fatal is really a guy. Haha, <laughs> so you waited nine years for this. Carver pulls a gun, and Fatal, or Stanton, who is now, uh, sort of on the floor, pulls the rug literally out from under Carver. Suddenly, Stanton pulls the rug out from under Carver's feet. His gun goes off. I, I shot myself. Fine mess of native things. Here comes Stanton. Come here, Stanton. Carver, can you hear me? Is my daughter alive? Answer me, man. Quick. Yes, she's alive. Yes. Where is she, Carver? And he dies. He's dead. My one hope for finding my daughter is gone. What's that? Footsteps. I've got to get out of here in a hurry. Lucky for Murray, this is a one-story jump. Here goes. Well, John Carver is dead, and the actor's disguise of Manifatala served his purpose, but this is not enough. So he's back home now. As for I've decided that as Madame Fatal, I'll go on finding crime and lawlessness as long as I can. Long live Madame Fatal. So my little girl is alive somewhere. Somehow I must find her. I am sure she needs my help. So there we go. Madame Fatal is the first cross-dressing character uh, in comics. And this uh, this whole daughter angle plays out for a little while. He's always looking for some uh, some way to get information on where she is, who's got her, where she's being being held. It's been uh, nine years, I guess, in story time, and uh, they're trying to find out who uh, you know where she is. Uh, Fatal was created and written and drawn by Art. Panagian. Uh, he was a member of the Eisner and Iger studio and then Funnies Incorporated. He also created the Invisible Hood for uh, for quality comics. Not surprisingly, Fatal didn't last long, running through issue 22 of Crack Comics. The character would later end up at DC Comics when they purchased all the quality characters in 1956. 
and uh, he, he slash she didn't make uh, many appearances in those years. Uh, but there is one significant appearance uh, that actually uh, provides the resolution to this missing daughter storyline, and it is not until 2012. Um, if you remember, uh, 2012 it's just after DC did the whole uh, New 52 relaunch in September of 2011, and uh, in 2012 they had a... Uh, uh, a Shade miniseries by James Robinson. Now, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, uh, in the 90s, uh, it was around, what, 94, 95, after the whole Zero Hour uh, uh, reboot thing they did then, uh, and they were trying to get rid of uh, the Justice Society of America again, they uh, they killed off some of the characters, and they did give James Robinson, because he wanted to, the opportunity to take the Starman character and do something new with him. And that's where, uh, when James Robinson's uh, famous Starman series uh, began. And it ran, uh, what, 80 issues from, like, 94, 95 until, uh, 80 issues off the top of my head, uh, 5, 6, 6, 7 years, something like that. Uh, and one of the characters there was the Shade. Uh, he had his own miniseries at one point during that run, and uh, he also was a, a major character in the in the whole Starman series. Uh, but for some reason, in 2012, James Robinson got to do a follow-up miniseries, and uh, it provided uh, information on his uh, origin, etc. But part of that uh, long storyline, it was 12 issues, actually includes uh, uh, Madame Vital and he, uh, and Robinson provides a, uh, a resolution to that, uh, that storyline. So, essentially, a nearly forgotten character gets an appearance, uh, you know, just nine years ago that uh, sort of wraps up the original premise of the series from uh, from 1940. That's kind of crazy, but uh, I remember I remember that series. I remember reading the uh, probably that was probably my first exposure to uh, Madame Fatale, uh, and then uh, ended up, of course, getting into the uh, Digital Comics database and going through or Digital Comics Museum. I'm sorry, and going through the uh, the characters uh, uh, and such that uh, that quality published back then. Uh, so that's uh, that's about it for Madame Fatal. Not uh, not a lot, not a, a major character, but uh, uh, significant in the fact that it's the first cross-dressing character and uh, just really one of those offbeat, uh, different kind of characters that uh, that you would see stuck in the middle of an anthology in the uh, in the Golden Age. So Madame Fatal. So. Uh, let's turn our attention to the Golden Age Blue Beetle. Now, the Blue Beetle is a character you're going to know a little bit more about simply because there have been other incarnations throughout uh, the character's 80-year, 80 80-plus-year 80 history. Um, and like I said, we'll touch on some of the more well-known characters at the end of the episode. But to start with, uh, let's just jump right in like we did with Madame Fatale. Uh, Instead of giving any information up front, let's uh, let's turn to the first story from Mystery Men Comics number one, and maybe uh, you'll hear a few similarities with 
another huge insect. So we're going over to the Digital Comics Museum again, and this time we're going to Mystery Men Comics number one. Let's find, let's pull it up over here. All right, here we go. The Blue Beetle by Charles Nicholas. And we've got a policeman laying down on the sidewalk and the car speeding by, the cops shooting at it. There's a newspaper clipping Mr. Vander, uh, uh, daughter uh, and secretary kidnapped. So that's what it says. Part of it's cut off in the actual thing. Mr. Vander and daughter and John Brand, his secretary kidnapped. Okay. While Dan Garrett was patrolling his beat, a car with the muzzle of a machine gun protruding from a window suddenly swooped down on him. Dan dropped to the sidewalk and fired at the automobile. A man is thrown from the speeding car. Dan Garrett feels pain shoot up his left arm. Heedless of his wound, he goes to the fallen man. I wonder who fell out of that car. It's Mr. Vander, the banker, who was kidnapped. Some people have gathered around. Take it easy, old man. Don't say anything just yet. It, it was the white face gang. Oh, and that's Vander's last words as he, as he dies in the street. Uh, we switch to police headquarters now in the sergeant's office. Mr. Vander died at 10 p.m., Dan, but there is still his daughter and his secretary, John Brandis, being held. Aren't there any clues? Only the car that they ditched. We haven't examined it yet, Dan. That arm of yours needs rest. Take the rest of the day off. Later, Dan Garrett, dressed in civilian clothes, looks over the gangster's car. Hmm, the number was filed off as usual. I'm not sure what number he's looking at. Uh, something under the hood. It's probably a, uh, I think there was a VIN number back then. It might have been. I'm not really sure. Uh, he puts a drop of specially prepared chemical on the filed off surface. In a few minutes, the numbers will appear. Ah, it's actually uh, on the engine. You can see it here. Later headquarters. The car belongs to Mike Ravani, a garage owner. That night, Dan visits a druggist, an old friend of his. Why, hello, Dan. Hello, Abe. I'm going to the back room. A light flickers for several minutes and then dies out. A figure emerges and drives away in a high-powered car. In another part of the city, on the top floor of a dirty garage, the banker's daughter is being tortured. Be sensible now, girlie. Better tell us the combination or you'll get burned. So we've got the daughter that's been kidnapped, and she's tied up in the chair. And there's some thugs that are got their faces covered, and they're threatening her. Suddenly, one of the thugs stops in his tracks, his eyes widen with terror. A, a, a blue beetle! Now on the corner of this desk with a... Uh, candle that's burning down and the wax melting that's providing the light for the room is a little blue beetle on the edge of the desk. Look! One of them screams. The blue beetle! And in the room enters the blue beetle. What do you want, blue beetle? Says another. Now let's describe the blue beetle here. He is, looks like a man in a blue suit with a standard kind of uh, driving gloves or something, uh, a fedora, and it's like a face mask, just a standard domino type mask. Turn the page, and looking closer, it looks like actually maybe even goggles of some kind. It won't be necessary to torture that girl any longer. I know the combination of the bank vault, and if you give me 40% of the take, I'll tell you. How do I know I can trust you? You'll have to take the chance. Well, do you want to play ball? Then the telephone rings, and the leader picks it up. Yeah, yeah, but who is this? All right, Blue Beetle. 
it's a deal. Let's have the vault combination. It's two left, one right, then three left, and four complete turns. That checks up with the information I just received, but you're coming with us, just in case it's a dub double cross. And the beetle thinks, try and lose me. Left alone for a moment, the blue beetle takes out a small instrument which he invented. Hello, police headquarters? And it's a wireless phone at the police station. What? The blue beetle at the National Bank at 12 tonight. But hey, wait a minute. Meanwhile, the gangsters arrive at the bank. Okay, boys, you have your orders. So it appears that the Blue Beetle has turned, or uh, given the police information that he himself will be at the bank. But of course, they don't know it's the Blue Beetle calling. The gangsters enter the bank, the yawning muzzles of their machine guns hungrily sweeping the interior. Raise them high. We cut the alarm system, boss. In vain, the leader twirls the dials. The Blue Beetle double-crosses. Grab him. The Blue Beetle acts quickly. He hits one of the guys. As the gangsters surround him, the Blue Beetle hurls a capsule. Gas! And then makes for his powerful car. One side, please. After him, that's the Blue Beetle's car. Take his mask off, Donald, as the cops are here now. If it wasn't for the Blue Beetle, you wouldn't have caught us. I, I can't see. I'm blinded from the gas. Don't shoot, coppers. We give up. Why, it's John Brandis, Mr. Vander's secretary. He was the one that had a mask uh, covering his face. Later in Abe's drugstore. Abe, if you hadn't called the white face at that time, my plan would have failed. You're a brave boy, Dan. The white face thought that someone was tipping him off, and when I gave him the same combination as you gave him over the phone, he believed that I was playing his game. Extra, Blue Beetle again eludes police. Next morning, Dan is back in uniform, patrolling his beat. You should have been there, Dan. Nearly got the Blue Beetle. I had him in my hands, but he got away. Sure, and I gave him an awful scare. You did. Maybe you'll get him yet. The Blue Beetle appears in Mystery Men comics every month. So uh, quite a short story for the uh, first uh, appearance of the Blue Beetle. But what I find the most interesting about this story is that it is awfully familiar to, to me, uh, to the uh, the Green Hornet, uh, and this has been noted elsewhere. I'm not the first person to notice this, of course, but uh, the, the the Green Hornet is a uh, he's a dead ringer for the Green Hornet and how he looks. He's got the powerful car, uh, uh, just like uh, the Hornet's uh, what the the Black Betty, I think is what it's called, if I remember correctly. I didn't bother to look that up. It just uh, hit me as I was uh, reading it through the. Uh, the first time. So we've got a uh, essentially a, a, a Green Hornet kind of ripoff uh, in this first appearance. But uh, before we uh, go too much further with that, because uh, we'll come back to that, but I want to go ahead and uh, read the, the, the next story. Uh, quickly though, uh, Fox uh, Fox Features, the, uh, the company that was publishing this, was uh, run by a guy named Victor Fox, and uh, I'm sure I've mentioned him uh, at some point in some other show. But uh, comics back then, there were companies of course like Timely and DC that were had a staff of Creators that were making the, that were 
doing their comics, or they were had freelancers that were uh, creating the comics. But there are other other companies that were uh, utilizing these uh, comic book packagers, like the Eisner and Iger Studio, which would um, do your comics for you, and then you would buy the whole kit and caboodle to publish it. And that's what was going on with uh, uh, with Fox and. So you've actually got stuff by Will Eisner and, uh, of course, the Eisner-Iger shop here uh, in this issue of Mystery Men Comics. There's a text story by Will Eisner in the first one, uh, and uh, I think you'll see his name somewhere else, but it's hard to know exactly what was uh, by Eisner or not, because he didn't have everything. Uh, uh, you know, it wasn't all... Uh, credited to him uh, but it's possible he wrote that first story the, the very first doll man story that is by Eisner uh, is, is similarly short and quick and, and to the point much like this story uh, but let's go ahead and turn over to the Blue Beetle's second appearance because it is quite different so here we're opening up. We've got uh, an armored car that is being assaulted by a uh, some gangsters. And once again, Dan Garrett's on the street corner, with guards standing by. An armored with guards standing by. An armored truck is being loaded with eighty thousand dollars, the payroll of several hundred poor, hardworking men who depend entirely on their week's pay to keep their families from starving. Suddenly, the quiet scene has changed into deafening confusion. Dan Garrett, a young policeman, dons the clothes of the Blue Beetle to rid the city of the worst criminals it has ever seen. Uh, that's not actually what's happening. That's like the uh, announcer for what the, for what the character's MO is. So we've got this uh, armored car robbery going on. Hurry up, you guys. Quickly and expertly, the money is transferred to the gangster's car. The thug's auto pulls away from the scene of murder. A moment later, a high-powered car leaves its hiding place and follows. Boy, some neat haul. What dumb cops. Ha-ha. And it is, of course, the Blue Beetle. Suddenly, the jubilant faces of the robbers are filled with terror when they see something on the windshield. And it is a Blue Beetle that has suddenly been thrown on the windshield, or they happen to notice it's already been set there. The Blue Beetle's car forces the other car to stop, and the gangsters jump out. The Blue Beetle goes into action. The Beetle has hopped out of his car, too, and gives the first gangster a sock on the jaw. Now the first thing you'll notice is that this is not the same looking character from the previous issue. He no longer has any resemblance to the Green Hornet. Uh, uh, modern readers may find that, if anything, he is uh, he resembles the Tick. If you remember the Tick, uh, he has his face is visible, but he has like a blue headpiece that covers his hair and the sides of his face. It comes down a short sleeve tunic, uh, blue traditional uh, swashbuckling gloves, and uh, looks like uh, pants that flow right into the feet, almost like footy pajamas. Uh, but we'll come to find out this is uh, actually like a chainmail, and there's a big blue beetle on his uh, also blue uniform, so he's all just blue. And he even appears to have uh, some sort of antennae coming out of his head. And he actually looks kind of silly, to be honest. 
One gangster manages to grab the powerful and elusive foe of the underworld. Hit him, Jake. I'll knock him across the street. Wham! Hey, you hit Blackie. The blue beetle evades the terrific blow. The leader of the thugs knock him unconscious with the butt of his gun. Throw him into the car and let's go. In their hideout, the gangsters are counting the money which they have stolen. Eighty grand, a neat five minutes work. Let's celebrate, then I'll take care of the blue beetle. Uh, as they leave, a bill flutters to the floor. Unnoticed by the thugs, the blue beetle struggles to it and grasps it. Uh, so, the beetle has been tied up and... They didn't actually throw him into the car. He's just been tied up on the ground. Uh, with the money, he hobbles to a nearby window. I hope they don't come in now. He slips the bill under the window, open slightly. Below, a newspaper boy notices it. Gee, a $20 bill. And he takes it to a policeman. I found it in this building, Mr. Manigan. Sure, and I'd like to see it, Tim. By golly, it's one of the bills, the marked bills from that bank robbery this morning. Faith, I'd better call headquarters and tell them to search this building. At police headquarters, send a flying squad to 107 Perch Street immediately. Right, Chief. Soon police cars roar through the streets toward the gangster's hideout. Meanwhile, the head of the bank thieves decide to do away with the Blue Beetle. Finish him off, boss. We gotta get out of town now. And the Beetle responds, you'll never get the chance. Suddenly, the thugs hear police sirens. Panic-stricken, they run out the door. Cops, let's scram. Ow! The leader leaps to a closet, grasping a ring. Attached to the floor of the closet, he lifts a trap door. So the fools left me, eh? Well, the police will not get me. I'm taking the money for myself. The blue beetle cuts his bonds with a knife, which the gangsters have dropped. Picking up a chair, he hurls it at the window. Crash! In the basement, the leader of the bank thieves drives out a secret door. I missed the chance to kill the blue beetle. Uh, I missed the chance to kill the blue beetle, but on eighty grand, I'll live like a king. As the gloating thug drives out, the blue beetle stands poised in the window of the third story. It's my only chance to stop that fiend. Those foolish men of mine are probably caught by now, but not me. I have brains. Ha ha. Smash! Sometime later, Manigan comes into the police office, dragging the unconscious leader of the gangsters. Sure, and this is the last one. I found him lying near a hydrant. In the home of Tim, the newspaper boy, whose alertness helped round up the gang and save the Blue Beetle. Gosh, he's wonderful. You should have seen what he did to that crook, and he gave me all his money. The next morning, Dan is on his beat. The police did a fine job, Mrs. Manigan. Too bad I wasn't there, Manigan. Dan Garrett will again be with you in the next issue to play the stirring role of the Blue Beetle. So another short four-page story for the second appearance of the Blue Beetle. And, as you can see, it is quite different from the Green Hornet with the second episode. He still has the car, which is very reminiscent of the Green Hornet's car. And he's still using the little beetle to, to scare the criminals and announce his, uh, his presence, but he's now he has a regular kind of costume, even though it's uh, fairly fairly silly looking. But it would, uh, it would morph uh, throughout his Golden Age appearances. He loses the antenna. The, uh, the hood becomes more uh, form-fitting. He gets uh, a mask that covers his eyes. 
and I believe he loses the uh, short sleeves at one point, but not or not initially. He still has uh, uh, the short sleeves for a while, and he's got gloves. Now, interestingly, the the Blue Beetle uh, actually does uh, does pretty well during the Golden Age. Uh, uh, it's kind of surprising, but uh, let's just jump back real quick to uh, how much he's like the Green Hornet and. I'm going to go a little bit of comics history here. Before the uh, the Blue Beetle appeared in uh, Mystery Men comics number one, uh, Fox had another comic book called Wonder Comics. And in this comic, we had uh, a character called, of all things, Wonder Man. Wonder Man was really, really similar to Superman in his powers. As the story goes... Victor Fox had commissioned Eisner and the Eisner and Agger Shop to create a uh, uh, a Superman-like character uh, for his for his comic that he wanted to have. So that's what Eisner uh, Eisner came up with. Uh, DC jumped on it right away and caused problems for Fox. And Wonder Man only appears in I think three issues before they pull him because he's too much like Superman. Now, I can't help but wondering if something happened with the Green Hornet in a similar fashion that they caught on to this Blue Beetle character and thought, that is too much like the Green Hornet that they they got Fox to change the character. But, uh, more likely what I'm guessing is, and I've not read any anything about this, this is just my own thoughts as I uh, read read this. People have, of course, uh, noted the similarities between the Green Hornet and the Blue Beetle in that first appearance, uh, but since it changes uh, for the very second appearance, there, there's not usually a lot of discussion about it. But what I'm thinking is... After that first appearance of both characters, and they got the uh, uh, the lawsuit from DC uh, immediately, and they changed the uh, Wonder Man. They dropped the Wonder Man character, or at least they figured, well, we've already got a, well, we got a couple issues left in the in the bag. I wonder if they decided immediately before uh, anything happened with a, a lawsuit from the owners of Green Hornet, if they would just change the Blue Beetle character enough to where it wouldn't really resemble the Green Hornet so much anymore. And that's just my, uh, my, my thoughts. So, uh, that is the first couple appearances of, uh, the Blue Beetle. Now, we've got a little bit of, uh, more here on, on the Blue Beetle to share, and I got this from Wikipedia. You can see the link, uh, in the notes section, and this sort of summarizes some of the uh, uh, the Blue Beetle stuff over the over the Golden Age time uh, time frame, because the Blue Beetle actually um, goes on throughout the Golden Age for quite a while. He uh, he runs in Mystery Men comics. He gets his own uh, he gets his own series. Uh, so let's jump right in here. Uh, Dan Garrett was the son of a police officer killed by a criminal. 
uh, the Fox Feature Syndicate version of the character debuted in Mystery Men Comics number 1, August 1939. It continued through issue number 31. He began appearing in his own 60-issue series shortly thereafter. Fox Feature Syndicate sponsored a Blue Beetle Day in the 1939 World's Fair on August 7, 1940, beginning at 10.30 a.m. and including 300 children in relay race finals at the field of special events, following preliminaries in New York City parks. The race was broadcast over uh, over the radio. Uh, so back to Dan Garrett. Uh, he was a rookie patrolman, originally fought crime as the Blue Beetle without the benefit of superhuman abilities, and, and we saw that. Uh, Garrett later donned a bulletproof blue costume. We saw that as well, described by Garrett as being made of cellulose material, which was, quote, as thin and light as silk, but stronger than steel and temporarily gained superhuman strength and stamina by ingesting the mysterious vitamin 2X. Uh, like the Green Hornet, the Blue Beetle would use his signature scarab symbol to bedevil criminals, leaving it to be easily found, hanging it down into a room on a string, and even projecting it enlarged onto a wall with a flashlight. So we saw those similarities with the Green Hornet, and he continues to do that for a little while. Now, we didn't get to uh, one of the stories where the... Uh, where the Blue Beetle is taking uh, the, the Vitamin 2X, but I have read one of those uh, uh, at a previous time. Uh, the supporting cast remained fairly stable throughout the original run, included Joan Mason, a beautiful blonde reporter for the Daily Blade, who would ultimately star in her back own backup stories, and Mike Manigan, Dan's stereotypical Irish partner on the force, who believed, despite all evidence to the contrary, that the Blue Beetle was a criminal and was always trying to arrest him with little success. We didn't meet Joan Mason, we did meet uh, Mike Manigan, and something here, uh, uh, I forgot to mention, with a similarity with the Green Hornet, uh, uh, Manigan always thinks that he's uh, he's the bad guy. Uh, but you'll recall with the Green Hornet that uh, the Green Hornet is, is is trying to do that as well, making uh, he was that was part of his M.O. He was he made the supposed to make the criminals think he was one of them, and you know work. To get information that way, and that that is something we we sort of see in that first Blue Beetle story, where he offers to give the combination uh, in order to to work with them as a as a ruse, which he is obviously going to try to stop them, of course. But uh, it's that seemed influenced by the Green Hornet as well. Okay, Doctor Franz, a local pharmacist and inventor of the bulletproof suit and two X formula as well as many other gadgets, including the portable wireless telephone. We saw that, and we met the pharmacist, too, in that first story. Nearly a half a century before they came into common use, played a large role in the early issues, but eventually faded from the cast. Not surprisingly, the Blue Beetle had a short-lived, spunky kid sidekick named Sparkington J. Northrop, who went by Sparky. Uh, during World War II, Garrett became a government agent who was often sent overseas on secret missions, but after peace was declared, he returned to his former role of neighborhood cop. The Blue Beetle's powers slowly increased over time, eventually giving him the ability to fly and X-ray vision, among other bizarre powers that changed from issue to issue at the whim of the writers. However, when superheroes fell out of vogue in the late 1940s, Fox started to downplay his superpowers, and they were removed. His adventures turned darker, full of sadistic violence and scantily clad women, until he was eventually relegated to hosting true crime stories before the character went on a hiatus. He was a popular character in his era. Uh, he even had 
or short-lived daily comic strip. And this is uh, originally drawn by uh, 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 Jack Kirby under a pseudonym. And in the notes section, there is a, a link to some of the early strips, but unfortunately, it is not uh, not by Kirby. Uh, but the link has some of the information about that. And he even had a radio series that ran uh, for 48 13-minute episodes. And I have been able to provide a link for that as well. Uh, they are available on YouTube. I'm not sure if the entire series is available, but there is least a few um, that I saw popped up. I linked to, I believe, the first one. At least I was trying to link to the first one. We'll have to see if I was successful with that or not. But uh, we had a Black Hood serial for a uh, uh, radio series for the Black Hood. We talked about that a bit in the Black Hood episode. And uh, I have heard a, a Blue Beetle one before as well. So uh, those are always fun if you like uh, uh, radio dramas. And if you're listening to a podcast, you might be the kind of person that enjoys just listening and doesn't need the, the visual aspects of, uh, of entertainment all the time. Let's, uh, let's turn to the Blue Beetle's creator. There's a little bit of controversy here, and uh, I'll talk a little bit about it, but I will also direct you to the, uh, the link on the, the, uh, the Lambeck uh, Encyclopedia. Or something. What's it called? That's not quite what it's called. Let's let's get it right. It is the Lam Lambiac Comiclopedia. Uh, so Charles Nicholas uh, is a uh, a care uh, a comic book creator. Uh, he's works in the Eisner and Iger studio. Uh, for a while, and uh, he uh, he goes on to have a, uh, a a long career in comics uh, for multiple uh, uh, companies, including uh, Time and the Atlas, Fiction House, Quality, uh, and National. Um, his his last name is. Uh, uh, Polish, so I can't really probably pronounce it right. I give it a shot. I think it's Wojkowski, something like that. Uh, but take a look at it in, in the link so you see how it's spelled and uh, get a little bit more uh, information about him. Uh, but he is the creator of the the Blue Beetle. But there is some people have credited to uh, Charles Nicholas Quidera, who is usually known as Chuck Quidera, who you will know uh, mostly from his work for Quality on Blackhawk in the 40s. Uh, he claimed at one time he created uh, uh, Blue Beetle, but uh, there's other information that is uh, probably more uh, accurate that uh, shows that Charles Nicholas Wojcicki, uh uh, credit created the Blue Beetle and uh, should get that uh, instead of that credit instead of uh, uh, Chuck Quidera. There is uh, another story from uh, my comic book uh, shop owner about Eisner and uh, Quidera because Eisner had a, uh, a hand in the creation of Blackhawk as well, uh, and uh, it's a long it's a 
it's not my story to tell, but we'll just say that it may not be the first time Quidere created got to uh, claim credit for something he was not the sole creator of. So uh, we'll just leave it at that. Uh, but check out the link here uh, uh, to that page. It's uh, got some other further links uh, in there you can follow also. So as we said, the Blue Beetle has other other incarnations. Uh, so you might be wondering about the Dan Garrett version that was published by Charlton Comics in the 60s. So uh, Charlton acquired, either by legal or illegal means, the uh, some of the plates to the Blue Beetle stories, apparently, and they reprinted some Blue Beetle stories uh, in the mid-50s. Still technically the, uh, the Golden Age, but we're not going to touch on them too much. Uh, and they're simply reprints of... Uh, the, some of the Fox stories, and from what I've seen, they're, they're not that, uh, they don't look that good. Uh, but in the 60s, uh, Charlton, believing they own the character now, uh, reinvented the character the Dan, with, with, as, with Dan Garrett, spelled his name with two T's instead of one. Uh, and this is like a reinvention of the Golden Age character, much like DC did with the Flash, or Hawkman in the uh, in the 60s, you know, sometimes the same name, the same character name, maybe a different uh, secret identity name, but similar costumes, but a different origin. So essentially, a different character. So this is the the version of the Dan Garrett Blue Beetle that we know uh, uh, as uh, the archaeologist who finds the mystic scarab. And he has some kind of uh, saying, what he has to say, kajadi or kajadai or some, something like that. It sounds kind of kind of weird. But anyways, that's what we think of when we think of the, uh, the Dan Garrett Blue Beetle uh, from the 60s and uh, that incarnation that makes its way into the, the Blue Beetle uh, lore in the, uh, in the 80s once DC acquires the Charlton characters. Um, and of course, uh, that Dan Garrett version preceded the Ted Cord version by Steve Ditko in the uh, in the later '60s, uh, and who has become a fan favorite now since his appearances in uh, in the DC comics of the '80s and '90s, uh, uh, etc. Uh, and of course, the Blue Beetle has gone on to a further incarnation as Jaime Reyes uh, created, I believe it was in the tooth thousands. Um, so there's a long uh, history of the Blue Beetle, over 80 years, going all the way back to the early days of the Golden Age, 1939. That's, that's, uh, that's pretty far back there. Now, Jaime is, Jaime Reyes Blue Beetle is unrecognizable as anything uh, whatsoever similar to the original Dan Garrett uh, version uh, outside of the name and the, and the color scheme, I guess, I suppose. But uh, it's pretty interesting to think that the character has lasted in some fashion uh, as long as he has. There's a, there's a legacy there clearly in uh, the Charlton Comics in the 60s when they brought the Ted Cord version and tried to utilize that that legacy aspect. And of course, DC has to an extent, but they haven't, I guess, really had a super successful series uh, with it where they could really really play that up. Um, I have to think of something like James Robinson's Starman 
for reasons that will soon be obvious. Uh, you know, there he he did something really amazing with the the legacy of the Starman character, uh, and it seems like they could certainly do something with the the Blue Beetle character uh, in a similar fashion. Really, really dive in and own some of that stuff. Uh, but anyways, that's what we've got on the Golden Age of Blue Beetle. A little bit more maybe than uh, uh, Madame Fatal, but uh, nonetheless, two characters that are. Uh, uh, Really, probably not well known. The Blue Beetle's known, but his original Golden Age incarnation is significantly different, I would say, from what people think of today when they think of Blue Beetle. And of course, Madame Fatal is one of those characters that would really go almost uh, 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 in the comic book limbo uh, have, uh, if it just hadn't happened to stumble across it, uh, really. Okay, well, I hope you enjoyed that. That was uh, a different kind of episode, getting getting two characters uh, in one. But, you know, sometimes there's a little character like that here or there that is is interesting, has something, you know, different about it. Certainly, Madame Fatal is different uh, with the whole cross-dressing angle. And then uh, the original... You know, Golden Age Blue Beetle is so different from what we know today. It's it's really interesting to see how uh, how that character started, and and of course I haven't gone into much with the uh, uh, the current incarnations of the Blue Beetle because I'm I'm presuming most people have a have a general idea of the uh, modern versions of Blue Beetle. Okay, so let's, let's turn to the next episode real quick, and this is one of the few times where I don't really know what's happening next. Uh, it all depends on how things play out. So I'm going to give you a tease for two separate episodes. Uh, next episode is going to be one of two things. It's going to either be my discussion with Tony Farina on the book, The Ten Cent Plague, uh, or it's going to be Sensation Comics number one. Uh, things have just been a lot busier all of a sudden for me uh, between the world returning to something more closely resembling pre-COVID times and trying to do more creatively. The scheduling is a little out of whack. We're just going to have to see what, what comes about. If it's Sensation Comics number one, we're going to do a read-through style episode with uh, Sensation Comics number one. Sensation Comics number one is the first comic to star Wonder Woman. Uh, and a comic that has the first appearance of a couple other famous DC characters, Mr. Terrific and the Wi and Wildcat. Uh, as a bonus, we'll also include Wonder Woman's first appearance from All Star Comics number eight. If that doesn't happen, though, we are going to do the Ten Cent Plague with guest uh, Indie Comic Spotlight's own Tony Farina. We're going to talk about. Uh, this book, The Ten Cent Plague, The Great Comic Book Scare, and How It Changed America by David Hajdu. This is a scholarly type work that looks at the impact of the comic book on society in America. Here's a, a blurb from the back. In the years between the end of World War II and the mid-1950s, the popular culture of today was invented in the pulpy boldly illustrated pages of comic books, but no sooner had comics emerged than they were beaten down by mass bonfires, congressional hearings, and a McCarthyish panic over their unmonitored and uncensored content. Esteemed critic David Hajdu vividly evokes the rise, fall, and rise again of comics in this engrossing history. 
And so that sounds like something any fan of comics should enjoy. And believe me, the book is really, really, really good. Either way, I hope you'll join me and maybe Tony uh, next time. And as always, thank you for listening. Thank you.